So good morning, everyone. For those who uh, might not know me, my name is Tom Rizzo. I'm one of the elders here at, at Westlake Church. And today we're continuing our sermon series entitled Jesus in the Old Testament. But before we jump into the passage for today, I want to pose a question to you. Who killed Jesus? The most obvious answer from reading the Gospels is that the Romans killed him. It was the Roman soldiers who mocked him and beat him and nailed him to the cross. One might also say that the Jews killed him. After all, it was the Jewish Sanhedrin that pronounced judgment on Jesus and handed him over to Pilate to be crucified. I suppose one could say that Jews, Judas killed him since he betrayed Jesus and turned him over to the Jews. One might even go as far to say that we killed him since he died for our sins. Or one could say that God killed him. Now, while there's, this, while there's a sense in which each of these is correct, the New Testament writers are clear that the crucifixion of Jesus was clearly part of God's plan. For example, in Peter's address to the multitudes in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Then in Acts chapter 4, after the disciples were warned not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus, they prayed asking for boldness to preach the gospel, saying, for truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever you There is a typology. It tells us about the very nature of, of God himself. Now, before we look at the passage, I should say a few words about the book of Isaiah, which is one of the Old Testament books that is most highly quoted in the New Testament. The prophet Isaiah wrote during the time that the nation of Israel was divided into the northern kingdom called Israel and the southern kingdom called Judah. During his lifetime, the northern kingdom was conquered by Assyria and there was pressure on, the, on Judah from the surrounding nations as well. It was a time when Judah was falling away from trusting God. The central theme of Isaiah, the book of Isaiah is God himself, his character, the nature of salvation, and his plan to rescue his people both from oppression and from sin. And another important theme is that of servanthood what it looks like for the nation of Israel to serve God in trust and obedience. Many of these themes, they come together in Isaiah's depiction of the Messiah, who is, who is a key figure throughout the book. He's the child Emmanuel and the root of Jesse. He sits on the throne 
of David and displays divine qualities. He's the one who brings justice to the nations. And he is the one who lays down his life for his people, as we will see in the passage today. Now, apart from some sections of the book that are written in prose, the book of Isaiah is mostly composed of, of poetry. And the Messiah, the, per, the perfect servant, is described in a series of four songs. Uh, and the passage that we're going to look at today is the last of these four songs. This particular poem or, or song has five stanzas, each comprised of three verses each. So, so let's jump in and look at uh, chapter 52, starting at verse 13. The passage starts out with God speaking. Behold, he's saying, God is saying, pay attention. I want you to take a serious look at this special servant savior. My servant shall act wisely. The, the word translated act wisely here carries a sense of acting in such a way as to successfully accomplish his mission. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. This term high and lifted up is one that Isaiah uses only for God himself elsewhere in the book. For example, in Isaiah chapter six, verse one, in the year that, that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Or in Isaiah 57, 15, for thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. So in using this phrase, the servant is being equated with God. But then in verses 14 and 15, Isaiah says that the servant's appearance will be shocking. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. What is so shocking is that the one who is high and lifted up is marred in appearance, disfigured. This refers to Jesus' appearance after being beaten and scourged. The word translated marred is used elsewhere in the Old Testament to refer to a blemished animal that would not be acceptable for sacrifice. And if you think about it, there, there's a, an irony here. Jesus' appearance, which would make a Passover lamb unacceptable as a sacrifice, is embodied in the perfect, sinless sacrifice. Now, if you look in your Bibles, both the ESV and the NIV version indicate a indicate a note that the word sprinkle in verse 15 can also be translated startle. And, and most commentators interpret it this way. The Messiah will startle the nations. The kings of the earth will be utterly astonished. They'll shut their mouths. They, they won't have anything to say. The one who was beaten into disfigurement is now high and lifted up. And this is likely referring to Jesus' second coming. If we look in Revelation uh, chapter 1, verse 7, 
Behold, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. During Jesus' time on earth, he didn't, he didn't appear to be the Messiah that the Jews were looking for. They were looking for a triumphant, conquering king, and his appearance was a stumbling block. They didn't understand that God's plan of deliverance, they did not understand God's plan of deliverance through self-sacrifice, which is rooted in the very nature of God himself. But this will become abundantly clear at Jesus' second coming, when the one who is marred and disfigured returns as the high and exalted king of kings. So this first stanza really describes the end of the story, how everything finishes. As we look at the next three verses, Isaiah presents the Messiah from a completely different perspective. In chapter 53, verses 1 through 3, we back up and see what happened at his first coming and the type of reception that he encountered. Now, before we look at these verses, we have to think about who is speaking in these verses and, and when. First, let's consider the question of when. Isaiah was writing 700 years before the birth of Christ. So he's a writing, writing about the Messiah who was to come. However, if you look in the next 11 verses, they're all written in the past tense from the point of view of someone looking back. So we have to be a bit careful here. Often in, in reading the Bible, we have a tendency to read ourselves into the passage without thinking too deeply about it. And this can sometimes get us into trouble. And uh, let me use this opportunity to make a plug for the Sunday school class that will start on um, September 11th on interpreting the Bible. Um, I would encourage you to, to join us for that, um, to learn how to avoid these kinds of traps as we interpret scripture. In these next 11 verses, Isaiah is writing to the Jews about a future event, but he's describing it as it, as it were a past event, as if it were a past event. Looking at the verbs that are used, they're all in the past tense. So the situation looks something like this. The prediction is made 700 years before Christ. Its prediction is fulfilled with the coming of Christ. But Isaiah is writing um, the predicted future event is describing it as, were, as it were a past event. And so the question is, when Isaiah uses the pronouns we or us, to whom is he referring? Just because it says we doesn't mean we can, uh, we can simply read ourselves into the passage. So many commentators agree that it's written from the point of view of Jews that are saved in the future, a future remnant, who are looking back at the Messiah through the prophet's eyes. And this would be consistent with the previous verses which describe the astonishment of the kings of the earth uh, when the true nature of the Messiah uh, is finally revealed at his second coming. So given this perspective, let's, let's jump into these verses. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the, Lord of, uh, who has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord in, in the book of Isaiah uh, is used to mean his, his power. 
And this is a rhetorical question. It's a sort of lament at the rejection of the Messiah by their ancestors. The Apostle John quotes this very same verse in chapter 12 of his gospel. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Continuing on to verse 2 in Isaiah 53, For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. The for here in verse 2 explains the unbelief expressed in, in verse 1. As, as one goes through the New Testament Gospels, it's clear that Jesus was not the type of Messiah that the Jews were looking for. It was not obvious from his appearance that he was the promised Messiah. He grew up as a young plant, another way of saying that his beginning was unremarkable, even irrelevant. He didn't burst onto the scene in a display of splendor. Those attending his birth were shepherds, lowly on the social ladder. No royal birth, no social status, no formal education, no stately form or majesty. And if you take a moment to think about it, it's amazing to think that Jesus, through whom the world was created, the creator of everything that was beautiful, came to earth with an unremarkable appearance. The display of Jesus' power was evident from the signs that he performed, but the Jews at the time were blinded. Only those with eyes of faith could see his true identity. In fact, only those to whom the truth was revealed could see that he was the Messiah. Even the disciples themselves had difficulty in grasping, grasping this at first. The parched ground suggests the spiritual dryness of the nature, uh, nation of Israel at the time of his coming. Not only was he unremarkable and unrecognized as the Messiah, he was despised and rejected. Verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Jesus was forsaken by his family who thought he was crazy and he was rejected by his countrymen. John in his gospel chapter one says, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. The next stanza of this song describes the substitutionary suffering of, of the servant. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we, esteem, we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. And looking back, converted Jews now have their eyes open and can recognize the error of the perception of their forefathers, as well as themselves before they received Christ as their savior. Their eyes are now opened to see what he did for them. And it, and it clearly carries a tone of lament. Looking back, 
they esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, while it was their griefs and sorrows that he bore. There's certainly irony here as well. They thought that he was punished by God for, for blasphemies such as claiming to be the son of God or claiming to be I am, to be equal with God. The irony was that while they esteemed him stricken, it was for their sin and our sin that he was stricken. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 6 recalls the ceremony of the Day of Atonement described in the book of Leviticus, where the priests would lay their hands on the scapegoat as if to place on it all the sins of the people and then send it out into the wilderness. The truth of this passage has a much wider application than Jews that are looking back on the rejection of the Messiah by their ancestors. The work of bearing sin and guilt encompassed all who believe on him for their salvation. Isaiah makes this clear in uh, chapter 49. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Now, as we move on to the, to the next stanza, it appears on the surface that the servant has suffered in vain. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Isaiah writes in an earlier servant song, in, in chapter 42, he will not cry aloud or lift his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He didn't respond to the charges of the Sanhedrin or the questions of Pilate or of Herod. The apostle Peter writes, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He was crucified between two criminals and his burial place was in the tomb of a rich man, which was not considered a place of honor, since in many cases wealth was acquired by oppression or dishonesty. Jesus' death was not a normal death. Many martyrs, many Christian martyrs, sang hymns on their way to their own death. Some even thanked God for being considered worthy to be martyred. However, Jesus' death was different. 
He dreaded what was before him as he sweat drops of blood in the garden of Gethsemane. And on the cross, he, uh, he felt abandoned as he cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? While it might have appeared that he had died in vain, the next verses show the real outcome of his suffering. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. It was the Lord's will to crush him. This was part of God's plan from the very beginning. God was pleased to crush him. Pleased not in the sense of rejoicing in the cruelty of it, but in the result of bringing sinners back to God. The Apostle Paul writes in, the second, in his second letter to the Corinthians, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, notice in verses 11 and 12, uh, that, that they now return to God speaking in the first person singular, looking to the future from the point of view of Isaiah. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. John Piper has commented uh, on this verse, saying it means that the servant was not taken off guard by the will of the Lord to crush him. He knew it, and he agreed with it. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This chapter, as as well as any other in the Bible, illustrates the upside-down nature of the gospel, which reflects the character of God himself. Now, in closing, I want to come back to the question that I posed at the start. Who killed Jesus? In verse 10 of Isaiah 53, Isaiah wrote, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. It's clear that God did it. It was part of his plan. And if you ever, have you ever asked yourself why this plan? Couldn't, have he, couldn't, ha, couldn't he have planned the history of our universe in any other way? Ask yourself the question, how could a God who is infinitely holy, infinitely just, and infinitely loving at the same time communicate his true nature to his creatures. To be honest, I can't think of another way he could do it. God's holiness, his righteousness, his justice, and his wrath, his love and his grace all come together to their climax at the cross. I want to close with a story that I read, which I think is true, that brought this a bit closer to home for me. And um, I hope it speaks to you as well. It's a story about Cliff Barrows, who worked for many years for the Billy Graham organization. And he tells, uh, the, the story is told of him, um, or he tells the story of a time that his two young children did something wrong. 
Although they were gently warned, they repeated the offense and needed to be disciplined. Cliff's tender heart was pained at the thought of having to punish the ones he loved. So he called the two into his room, removed his belt and his shirt, and with bare back he knelt by his bed. He, he told each child to whip him ten times. Oh, how they cried! But the penalty had to be paid. The children sobbed as they lashed their daddy's back. Then Cl Cliff hung and kissed them, and they prayed together. It hurt, he recalls, but I never had to spank them again. Jesus took the lashes for all our sins. Now he invites us to accept his forgiveness and devote the rest of our lives to him. He wants us to know the Father's holiness and the greatness of his love. That's why he died. That's why the Father killed him. Let's pray. <clears throat>